This is Balancing Impact, uniting the greatest minds and thinkers from all different sectors statewide for one common goal, positive impact in Texas. By connecting people from the private sector, public sector, finance, and academia, we can connect each other with resources and tools to make a bigger impact on the social and environmental state of Texas. Simply put, we can do more when we work together. Everyone, this is Crystal Nelson. You are listening to Balancing Impact with Texas Impact Alliance. We're the first and only statewide organization working to scale social and environmental impact in the state of Texas by uniting stakeholders from the private sector, academia, public sector, and finance. We believe we can do more by coming together than working in silos. Earlier this year, we published a report on the state of funding for female founders, specifically in Texas and now we're following up with a series of interviews with female founders in Texas and we're talking to them about their business and their journey as well as specifically funding items. Today we have with us Brittany from Ecola and we're glad to have you here Brittany. We'd like to start off by can you tell us for those who may not have heard of Ecola before or heard of you before just tell them a little bit about you. Go ahead. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. My name is Brittany Underwood. I'm the founder of Acola. We're one of the first social impact brands in the luxury space that impacts and transforms the lives of women in crisis through our entire supply chain. That's awesome. So for Texas Impact Alliance, we're really focused on social enterprises, nonprofits that have a commercial lens through it, and essentially corporations that are doing more than just making a profit. And it sounds like that's really what Acola is doing. You have a business side, but you also have this impact side. You're, you're looking to make a change in the world. You're looking to help others. How would you describe your business, your business model? Are you a social enterprise or a nonprofit? What, what would that be? So we're a benefit corporation and we also have a nonprofit. So we've worked for the past 15 years to transform the lives of women in crisis and just high risk situations starting in Uganda. And we've worked with over 600 women at any given time. We have about 200 women in our workshop. And these are women who struggle to care for an average of nine kids in their home. They're not educated. Um, they have no income. So when we started working with them, I mean, they could barely put food on the table for their kids. So um, we're really proud to see them make jewelry that's now sold at Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom um, and Saks Fifth Avenue. It's been a crazy journey, but we're really proud of the impact we've had on women and children. That's amazing. So right now you're a benefit corporation, but we know businesses usually don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to be a benefit corporation. Most businesses don't even know what a benefit corporation is. So first, can you tell us what a benefit corporation is as opposed to like a S corp or some other type of model? And then secondly, can you tell us about your journey from when you first started to actually becoming a benefit corporation? What was that evolution? So first, uh, benefit corporations, it's sort of a, a new structure for businesses that give back and that have an environmental, social, and financial impact just ingrained in their model. So when you think of benefit corporations, you can think of Warby Parker, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, and we're so proud to be kind of among those businesses. The journey to becoming a benefit corporation <laughs> has been 
quite a crazy one. Um, I started this when I was 19 at SMU. I'm 35 now. So it's been, you know, almost 16 years of um, kind of figuring out how to build a business that has impact at its core, but also can sell a product that can compete well in the global marketplace. And um, that did not happen overnight, nor did creating a benefit corporation. So I actually started years ago as a nonprofit and went to Uganda at teaching a boarding school and met a woman named Sarah when I was there who sacrificed everything she had to care for 24 street children who were sleeping on her floor. And I was moved, I mean, in ways I'd never been moved before to, to help. I just couldn't imagine the burden of trying to feed and clothe and send that many kids to school when you don't have the money to do that. Um, and just watching them, I mean, literally starve um, if money didn't come in and, and, and just thought maybe I could help. And so that project turned into an orphanage which I raised the money to build when I was in college um, in 2005 for Sarah and her kids. So, you know, that was sort of the <laughs> solution to, you know, if kids don't have food, then, you know, and they don't have shelter, then you build an orphanage, right? Um, it wasn't that simple. I thought it was, but we raised the money to build this orphanage and I moved to Uganda with three friends who put their post-college jobs on hold in 2006. And we built this, I mean, massive three-story orphanage for all the orphan children in Sarah's community. But it was really during the time that we were building the building and, and making construction payments and living in Uganda, getting to know the community that we realized what the community really wanted, um, what the women wanted was to keep these kids in their homes. They didn't want to send them to an orphanage. They wanted to have the income themselves and the training to care for them um, in their own community, in their own homes. That was sort of their vision for their lives and their calling. Um, and we were sort of taking that away from them by creating this other solution that is fine, but not maybe the best way to care for kids in these communities. And a response to that, I started Acola in 2007. Acola means she works. We started with 15 women <laughs> under a tree and thought maybe they could produce jewelry. And if we could sell the jewelry in the United States and different boutiques, then the money could just go back and they could care for these kids in their home. The reason we picked jewelry, Neiman Marcus uh, left when we talk about this now, very little thought went into what products we were going to carry. We just wanted to create something that the women could make in a village that was, you know, relatively easy to make and that we could sell. And I had a couple of friends who own boutiques. And so I thought, you know, how hard could this be? We'll just make Tori sell it in the States and all the money will go back to these women. So we started really small. And by 2010, oh goodness, we had, you know, over a hundred women in our program. And that was the time when we realized if we really wanted to compete and we really wanted this to work and to continue to care for more and more women and families so they could provide for their kids, like we had to create a very competitive product, right? That had a high level of sales so we could support these women. So we started investing. This is kind of what's always set our business apart in manufacturing facilities for our women. So we bought land we drilled 23 water wells because women were fetching water all day and couldn't 
even go to work. So we had to address the infrastructure for economic opportunity. We, from scratch, built these training centers in rural villages where we were often the only tin roof and a place where women could work and create quality products. So we started investing in that and the quality of our jewelry and just improved and improved. And at the same time, one year um, it was horrible. In 2010, we had 10 women die of childbirth in our program. And we thought, how in the world could this happen? They're making a living wage. They had the money to go to the clinic to have their babies. And we did a little digging and realized that either they didn't know there was a clinic or they had superstitions around going to the doctor. So that was an education gap. Even though they had income, women were still dying in childbirth and thought, we can't do this ethically unless we're addressing the education gap as well as the income gap. So that's when we started Akola Academy, which is still kind of the heartbeat of who we are. It's our nonprofit. And it is designed to create a curriculum for women that they participate in that teaches them about health and wellness and provides counseling and teaches them how to use their money to to create sustainability and change. It's one of the best things that we do. Um, And probably the reason why, you know, in our case, you know, women are not just receiving a living wage, like whole families are coming out of poverty through our program. That's kind of how things got started. Wow, that's an amazing story. And we know, especially in today's times, it's important that consumers know your story. It's not just enough that you have a product or a service out there. Consumers really want to connect with organizations through your story. And it really seems like Okola has an amazing story, an amazing background of really going under the why. Why is this important? Not just here's a product, please buy it from me. But this is the story and this is the why behind the product and the service that you're providing. Absolutely. And in our case, I think there's, especially in the age of social enterprise and, you know, impact marketing. Sometimes, you know, there are real impact stories and sometimes it's sort of a marketing tool for some companies as well. And I think what's been neat about Acola is it's a, it's an authentic story. I mean, you can't make this stuff up and the impact goes so, so deep. And, and so, yeah, we've really enjoyed bringing that to our customers and engaging them in the lives of the women who who make our products that they proudly wear. So yeah, it's been very fun to have a story-driven company. What's one of your favorite stories that is really memorable to you and your journey with working with the women? Like what's a story that just really sticks out to you? Oh goodness, there's so many. One of my favorite moments in this journey is when I had my wedding my husband in Uganda <laughs> with all the women I had been working with for wow, thank gosh, like seven years at that point. Yeah, we had a wedding in Atlanta and then we went to Uganda because all the women had said like, you can't, I mean, we want to be a part of this too. You know, like they were so invested in my life and we had sort of walked alongside each other for years and they wanted me to have a wedding in the village, which I had no idea what to, <laughs> what to expect from that. And I mean, oh my gosh, all 500 women that we had worked with over, you know, that past like six or seven years were there. And my husband, they put him in a kanzu. (laughs) He's like six feet tall. That's like a white dress. He was like, what am I doing here? Eight hour ceremony and, you know, this little mud hut church that our women run that I've been going to for years. And 
and like just the reception on the Nile, they were my bridesmaids. They had little flower girls, like some of their kids were flower girls. And it was just this moment where I think what was so special about that for me was this isn't my work. Like this is like a family, you know, these women are so much more than women that I work with and we serve each other. You know, it's not like I just do things for them. Like they do things for me too. Like it's this amazing equal relationship where we have capacity to give in different ways, but we give to each other and love each other and serve each other. And, you know, just hoping, you know, even for a moment when you're able to cross boundaries of, you know, barriers really of race and culture and economic status and religion come together and love somebody else like that. Those are some of the most powerful moments in, in life. I had the privilege of experiencing so many of those, but that, that was by far my favorite one. Celebrating with them and introducing, you know, my new husband to the, this community of women who are so close to my heart. It was, it was really special. Wow. Yet another awesome story. Listeners, if you're listening here, think about within your company, within your organization, what's your story? What story are you providing to your consumers? Now, in reference to, like, essentially, this is like the heart part of the business. This is essentially the purpose and essentially why a lot of people start a lot of nonprofits specifically. And I understand that Acola actually started out as a nonprofit, and now you're a benefit corporation. What was the deciding factors that made you change models? And did you struggle with any of that, or was it just pretty much an easy transition? Absolutely. That's a great question. So I'll go back to my story. I think I left off just in 2014, what we were building with Acola Academy as a nonprofit with our social services and then our manufacturing business. And um, we were able to elevate the quality of our products by investing in sort of that infrastructure to support it for our women. And we had our huge break in 2016. Um, I was given the privilege to, to meet with the CEO of Neiman Marcus, who at the time was Karen Katz, one of the most remarkable women I've ever met. And she gave me a 10 minute meeting um, with her, which sometimes feels like that's like a blow off meeting. <laughs> Someone says they're going to meet with you for 10 minutes. You're like, okay, like they're just, they're just yeah. doing a favor to somebody else. And you know, I don't know what's going to come out of this. But I thought I've got 10 minutes with one of the top CEOs, retail CEOs in the world. I've got to tell her this story and see if we can get Neiman Marcus involved. And so I told her the story of you know, the orphanage and then the women and, and how our, and our products, you know, impact whole families and brings them out of poverty and, and, and sort of the journey to get there and our capacity and said, look, we really understand social impact. We understand sustainable supply chains. We understand how to create an impact brand, but we don't know how to become a luxury brand like you do. Like you've created some of the top brands in the world. Like we don't have the resources to even build a brand, but I know that you do. And I know that Neiman Marcus does that for brands. And wouldn't it be powerful if we came together and created something new in the world and you know, I thought there was a 1% chance that we would even get like a trunk show <laughs> at Neiman Marcus out of that. But I thought even that, you know, to have the Neiman Marcus brand on our products would, would allow us to elevate and create more expensive products so we could impact more women. 
and we wanted to impact women in Dallas as well. The goal was to have higher priced products so we could pay a living wage here to bring women in crisis in Dallas into our supply chain as well. And so um, to my surprise, she said, I'm totally interested. <laughs> Create a product line and at a much higher price point than you've sold before. And, um, you know, kind of that $150, $500 price point and come back and we'll see what we can do. And I came back and they ended up launching our brand. I mean, nationally through Neiman Marcus, which was, I mean, none of us, even we had a advisor at the time and he was helping us through United Way and you know, he's an old Neiman Marcus employee. And he said, you know, there's no chance that they put you in more than four stores. They don't ever do that with a new brand. And next thing I knew, you know, we were in almost every single Neiman Marcus store by the end of the year and became a top 10 jewelry brand um, at Neiman's in our first season. So when that happened, I mean, we never expected to grow from sort of this tiny nonprofit that sold jewelry to, you know, several hundred boutiques across the country to a brand that was selling in one of the top luxury retailers in the world. It just happened so quickly. It happened overnight. And we really struggled for, you know, gosh, a year, year and a half to service the Neiman Marcus account as a nonprofit. We didn't have any capital. We didn't have the talent we needed. We didn't even have a designer. And we were, you know, we relied on Neiman Marcus team to help us design our products, which they were just so gracious to help so we could compete and perform but you can't continue to run a business that way. And I think we, you know, we made the decision when we learned that um, Saks Fifth Avenue wanted to pick up our products as well and Nordstrom, um, which happened a year and a half later, we just knew we couldn't do it as a nonprofit. We didn't have the resources we needed to do it well and to make it work. And it's a highly competitive space. And in our case, so much is at stake. You know, we have women and children's lives at stake you know, these accounts, you get one chance and if it doesn't work, you don't come back, you know, and, and we wanted to do that well. So we met as a board and it was really a unanimous vote. I mean, the vote was we can either stay small, um, stay a nonprofit only and just service kind of the Neiman Marcus account, or we could become a benefit corporation, still have our nonprofit, Akola Academy, that does all of our social services for our women, but really raise the capital we need to compete in these top retailers to help thousands of women, hopefully down the road. And everyone was behind it. For me personally, it took some time. I, I was very committed to the nonprofit organizational structure. And, you know, the only reason we started this business is to help women. Like there was really no other reason except for the impact. And what's nice about being a nonprofit is, you know, the mission is, central <laughs> to your organizational structure. That's why you exist, to serve the community. So it felt very natural to be a nonprofit. And um, the problem with nonprofits are that they're not structured well for growing social enterprises. And um, there's no there's no way to raise real capital unless you're just relying on donations or smaller loans, which, you know, can't get you through a growth season like this. So I finally came to terms with that and embraced this new structure. And we were so excited to be able to become a benefit corporation because that gave us the best of both worlds. We were able to write mission, which is one of the benefits of being a benefit corporation is you can write mission into your governing document of your company. So investors know when they're investing in your business 
they're not just investing in the bottom line, they're investing in a social mission that that you plan to achieve. And then we started raising capital. And that has been quite a journey and, and actually an exciting one. Wow. That is definitely, it sounds like your journey is part of the story. And I keep referring back to stories, but essentially letting people know about your journey. And that's part of why we're doing this today is we want to share journeys of female founders, amazing ones like Brittany here, who has this journey. And she's telling you some of the things that were, they're really great, but she's also telling you that, you know, there's challenges and there's some things that you have to go through. So if you're out there listening, be encouraged. This is a journey. I want to talk to you. You've talked about your supply chain and manufacturing. We know that there's lots of companies out there that have artisans and essentially working with people overseas to essentially have them create crafts or jewelry and then selling them other places. But we don't hear a lot about people building whole manufacturing places and (laughs) essentially that's a whole nother scale. That's a whole nother level. Can you go into a little bit more detail in reference to that? What were some of your challenges in even doing that? And then what advice would you give to others who have supply chains within their business in reference to building manufacturing? That has always been kind of what has set us apart. I mean, two things from other social brands. One is we actually don't work with artisans. We work with women in crisis who have no training in making any sort of product whatsoever and no background doing that. They just cannot feed their children. And we actually train them to become artisans. So that's always kind of set us apart and been something different that we do. And then second to that is our investment in manufacturing. I think we learned early on that, you know, again, for us to have the social impact we want to have um, and impact as many women as as we want to impact and families that, you know, we really have to have a competitive product. Um, We can't make jewelry under a tree, you know, like there's dirt. I mean, we used to have dirt in our beads, (laughs) like literally before 2010. I mean, you'd have a bead on your necklace and in the varnish was like some red dirt from the road. You never like, we had metals, you know, metals that were cast in sand molds, which sounds really cool, but they had lead and nickel in them. They were scrap metal. Like you can't sell that either, you know, and there's just a lot of quality issues, which I think is one of the struggles of this, the fair trade movement, especially with jewelry or other groups that work with artisans um, is it's hard for them to break into the market because they can't get the quality right. Um, they can't get the materials right. They can't get the metal composition right in their metals that even allows them to sell in bigger retailers. And it's a real struggle. I'm so glad one of the best decisions we ever made was starting to invest in that in a manufacturing facility where we could control the quality, where we could have oversight, make sure that the right, you know, we're importing the right metals for the women to work with. And even as they're making, you know, the beads and the products, what's also unique about Acola is our women make most of our beads as much as they assemble the jewelry. So they're not just like putting stuff together. They're actually creating the product themselves. And we're building one of the biggest Anacoli cow horn businesses in Uganda where women use upcycled cow horn. Cows have horns in Uganda. And they make it into beautiful jewelry. So, I mean, we have to have specialty machines for that. Like we have an entire workshop that has pretty (laughs) technical 
machines to be able to even work with that material. And um, we also have women that hand braid raffia and hand make beads and it doesn't require that level of sort of machinery, but they still work in our center. So we can, you know, monitor quality. We can check them in and out, make sure they're receiving the wage that we want them to make so they can care for their families. And it just allows us to control the impact better to make sure that it's really happening with our women and the training as well as the quality. So um, we've recently been working. I can't reveal <laughs> the group. I wish I could. It's a couple weeks away and I would have been able to, but I'm um, working with a group that's looking to make a significant investment, a $5 million investment directly into our manufacturing business. So we can go from 10 women making Anacoli Cowhorn to 60, which is right now we have about 200 women making our products and the Anacoli Cowhorn, everyone wants to do it because it's, it's not just a living wage, it's a sustainable wage. And what a sustainable wage means, it's high enough where women can actually start creating wealth. Not only are they over the poverty line, but they can start building wealth for their families with that kind of wage, which is what we're really driving towards. So, I mean, there's just really exciting opportunities ahead. And um, now that we've kind of built the fundamentals of the manufacturing business to scale it to become a world-class manufacturer that just happens to employ women in crisis, which has never been done before. So that's our dream and that's our goal. And we've always been very invested in seeing that come to fruition. And it looks like it's going to grow quite a bit in the next couple of years. Well, that's awesome. Well, we'll definitely be looking out for when you do make the announcement on who that organization is in reference to the $5 million. Congratulations. And that's a good segue into asking about how is Ecola funded? That's part one. Part two is what are the challenges? And then what would you do differently? Because the funding part is a journey too. And the way that you were funded in the beginning is probably a lot different than the way you're funded now. So what are some lessons learned that you could share with the listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think starting out, we as a nonprofit, when we got the Neiman Marcus account, I mean, we needed capital immediately. And or we would have had to tell them no. And obviously, you know, the way nonprofits work, like it takes a long time to cultivate donors, to bring in capital. Like you can't just get, you know, funds immediately like you can if you're a business and you suddenly get a bigger account. So we had our first big funder was Northern Trust and they've just been an incredible partner to us over the years. And they were really invested in, you know, the impact we wanted to have on women in Dallas and our city as well as Uganda. So they did all of our product financing as well as gave us quite a generous amount in a loan to start at least hiring a couple people. Um, so we weren't running this national account without a staff or team, which was the case when we, you know, first got this account, I think we had, you know, just like three or four people on our team in the U.S. Um, and they had to make a million dollars of product for Neiman Marcus, which was virtually impossible to do with that size team. So um, we started taking on impact investment structured as low interest loans um, that we took on as a nonprofit. So that's how we grew until we became a benefit corporation. I think the upside and the downside of that, the upside of that is it was patient capital at a low interest rate. It allowed us to, you know, again, continue to run a business as a nonprofit, um, especially with the kind of that 
high spike of growth that we experienced with the Neiman Marcus account. The downside of impact investments for a nonprofit is you have to pay them back really quickly often. Northern Trust was really generous with their timeline and gave us incredible terms, but some other impact investments we took on, I mean, you know, you would barely even get your head above water and you had to pay down a loan. And that's really hard to grow business that way. Sometimes we didn't even have the cash cycle back from the year before. And so it was hard. So I think, I mean, for nonprofits that are social enterprises that have that, you know, high growth opportunity, if that comes their way, I'm not sure if I would encourage them to take on impact investments or I would encourage them to, at that point, become a benefit corporation. I think the one mistake we made is we just waited too long. We probably should have done this, you know, at least a year or two earlier when we, when we had this big break. It would have been really nice to have the capital we needed to build a brand when you have an opportunity like this. We would have been able to do a lot more, but I think we did it just in time for us. Also, you know, raising capital is hard. And once we could show investors that we had been in Neiman Marcus for over two years and have a steady, you know, presence with them and and we started getting other retailers, that's when we were even able to raise capital. So I think the timing was the way it was supposed to be for us. But I think the advice I would give others is if you are a nonprofit running a social enterprise, if you get a huge account like we got with Neiman Marcus, like you should really consider an organizational change just to make sure your business is healthy and you can grow it the right way. So we did that. Um, Again, you could go either direction there. And then when we started to raise capital as a benefit corporation, we could raise debt and equity, which was the first time we were able to raise equity for our business and had so many conversations with so many people about how important it was not only to raise that money, but to raise it from the right people who share a heart for our vision, mission, and impact and what we want to do in the world. And so, you know, I think initially we thought we'll raise this through impact investors. And for those of you who don't know what impact investors are, they are investors that are looking to have a social or environmental impact. Um, when they invest along with a great financial impact. And they kind of look for benefit corporations, which is great because benefit corporations are are the type of businesses that have that mission. So we initially thought, you know, this is going to be a slam dunk. We'll just get a bunch of impact investors. And it's funny, it was harder for us to raise money through traditional impact investors than it was through just traditional venture capital which was very surprising for me. And and I don't think it's because impact investors weren't interested in our model. There's just not a lot of them. There's not a lot of them. There's not a lot that are investing, you know, sort of those high dollars into early stage businesses, certainly in retail. It was just more difficult, I think, than we anticipated. So we opened up our round to kind of some family offices that work on more of a venture scale. And we ended up raising more money than we anticipated, which is really exciting. So um, by the end of this year, um, we will have raised, I think, eight and a half million dollars in our seed round, which is highly unusual for for a retail brand, maybe for a technology company. But it's been an amazing journey. And I think I've learned so much. And I'm so excited that that we were able to cross that finish line and do that for our company so we have the resources that we need to really build a brand. Wow, congratulations. That is amazing. 
again, this goes as part of the story. This is your story. I mean, even getting the $8 million, that's amazing. In reference to you're a female founder, have you found any difficulties in reference to, for example, when you're pitching to a male investor? Do you pitch to more male investors or do you find that it's about even male and female or who are you pitching to normally? And do you find any uniqueness in reference to maybe questions that they would ask you as a female founder as opposed to what they might ask a, a male founder? It's so interesting. I think, again, with timing, it's, I think this was a great year, especially Dallas to raise money as a female founder. I don't think that would have been the case even five years ago. But I think the landscape is changing and investors are looking to invest in minorities and women. And it's, you know, that's becoming more of a thing. And so I benefited from that in incredible ways. I never felt in any meeting that I was treated differently because I am a woman. Like I never felt that once, which is pretty amazing. Um, actually, I did on the flip side have a woman women-led VC group, <laughs> frustrated that we had too many women on our executive <laughs> committee. And again, they fund women, <laughs> women, you know, women-run businesses, and they wanted to see more men in our company and more diversity. I thought that was pretty funny. But that did not come from men. That came from a, a group, a women's group that was focused on investing in women. So that was surprising because we're mainly, we work with women and we serve women. We, we don't have very many men on our team. We're really a women run and built company. And obviously in our category with jewelry, that just attracts more women in general. But yeah, that was, that was surprising. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I think if anything, there were some advantages, honestly, of being a woman, because I think people are looking to invest in, in women now and are excited about these kind of opportunities. So if anything, I think it, it helped rather than hurt. And I know a lot of other people who've had very different experiences, women that have really struggled to get funding. But I think it says a lot about Dallas and our city that the people we met with were so open and excited to do that. So That's definitely a great perspective. I think it's kind of like the news. In the news, we hear a lot about the bad news. And it's not as often that we hear about the good stories coming out. So it's really great to hear a different perspective from a female founder that lets people know that it is possible and that every person's journey is unique. And although the data will show you that women have a harder time getting funding overall, know that there are some really awesome stories out there of female founders just like Brittany who are actually making a lot of headway and their story is not always the same as even what the data shows. So that's a definitely important takeaway for you listeners. Now we're on the home stretch. We're going home for the home run. And I want to ask you about your in reference to advice that you would give. So there'll be startups listening to this. There'll be women who have been in business for a very long time and they're subject matter experts, but everyone has struggles. Everyone has challenges, no matter what stage of business that you're in. What would you want listeners to take away from your journey and your journey so far, because it's continuing. What would you want them to take away? What would be a lesson learned? What's a jewel that you can leave them with? I really think perseverance. That is the one thing I can take credit for is determination and tenacity to 
to not give up in this journey. Um, we have come so far in 15 years ago, I would have never dreamed that our products would be sold at Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue and Nordstrom like that. I mean, I'm a big dreamer, but I don't think I would have even gone there, you know, in my, in my head. I mean, we made products in this, these tiny villages with women who could barely care for their families. So the thought of, you know, the business coming that far was just beyond me. And, and I think what led us there was just one, one foot in front of the other and just continuing to take the next step. Like we never knew it was going to grow this way. Never knew if it would, would work, you know, and, and this model was so new and we were working with a population that, you know, other groups have really struggled to serve. And I just kept on going. And I think over the years that perseverance pays off, you know, and you really learn how to do the work that you're doing. And in our case, work in a country that's not our own, like really learned how to do that and how to serve a population well and have the kind of impact that we want to have and make the kind of products we want to make. And, but that takes time. Like I think people were in an age where people think these things happen overnight. I mean, they listen to the Warby Parker story and hear that, you know, four guys at business school get excited about something. And three months later, they're launching this huge company. Like that's possible. But then also to have this kind of impact, if you're impact driven, it takes a lot more time and, and, and a lot of perseverance and patience. And so I would just encourage anyone who's doing this to just keep on taking those steps and knowing that something amazing will come out of it if they just persevere. Well, you all, you heard it straight from Brittany. She's giving you some awesome, valuable advice for you and your journey. Now, Brittany, what's on the horizon for Ocola? What are you most excited about? What's coming up? I am very excited about launching our new e-commerce site, which is going to feature um, new products that our women are making just more sophisticated, a really excited product line. And um, that ranges from $48 to 500. So there's something for every woman at every price point, they can participate um, in our mission. So that's coming, gosh, in a couple weeks, we'll have a kind of rebrand relaunch on our website, which I'm thrilled about. And then our products are now at Neiman, Neiman Marcus and Saks and Nordstrom. So what's great is, again, if you want products under $100, then go to Nordstrom and see what Acola has to offer. And again, it's guilt-free jewelry. You get to feel great about your purchase and help the lives of women and children. And if you like luxury jewelry or affordable luxury jewelry, you can go to Neiman Marcus or Saks Fifth Avenue and and find that there. So there's a lot of exciting things with new retailers in the pipeline. And, and again, even on our e-commerce site, we never had the ability to invest in that as a nonprofit, didn't have the funds to do it. And, and now we do. So I'm really excited to give just this better, deeper experience to our customers and to tell our story in new ways. So be looking out for that. We will definitely be looking out for that. And Brittany, where can people find out more information about Ocola? How can they get in touch with you if they want to buy your product, if they want to interact with you on social media? Where's the best place to go? Yeah, so you can go to our website at acolaproject.com, A-K-O-L-A-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.com. Um, and then you can go visit us on Instagram at acolajory and follow kind of all of our our latest and greatest styles, but also stories from the women in our project. Well, 
you heard it. You know where to follow you all. You know where to go get those gifts for people in your lives that you want to go get gifts for. This is a great gift that you can give away to yourself as well as to others. So keep that in mind. Thank you so much, Brittany, for being here. Thank you for the Alcola family for being here. We hope you and wish you all the best, and we hope to stay connected with you. And we're signing out with Balance Impact. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Balancing Impact. We bring the greatest minds and thinkers together from all different sectors of Texas with one common goal, making a positive impact. And you can make a positive impact right now. Just click subscribe to this show and you'll be first to hear new episodes jam-packed with content about people coming together for one common goal, positive impact for Texas.